All right, folks, welcome to the second episode of Late Era, a new Osiris podcast where we're talking about uh, the late career records, the strange, the underappreciated, the bad, uh, the hilarious by, you know, some of the, the greatest, most iconic artists. Uh, on today's episode, we are talking about Doobop. It's the 1991 uh, final album by Miles Davis, uh, released shortly after his death, but assembled mostly during his lifetime in collaboration with the hip-hop producer Easy Mo B. It was Miles Davis's first foray into something like a blend of hip-hop and jazz. Maybe he would have done more of it. Maybe not. We don't know because he died. Uh, so it stands as this kind of strange, unexpected uh, final statement from one of the greatest musicians who ever lived. And we are excited to dig into it. But first, our hosts are me, Andy Kush, Winston Cook Wilson. And my name is Sam Sadomsky. So happy to be back. Hey, guys. Feels good. Yeah, it is good. How, how are we all doing right now? I'm amazing. Well, yeah. I said it feels good. It feels good to be here, but as we kind of established, it's been a shitty week for a lot of us. I'm just going to be honest. So we're yeah, coming sure. together to talk about literally one of my top five favorite artists ever, one of my great inspirations, his weirdest album, his most sort of straightforwardly dismissed or maligned. Oh yeah, that's the Miles Davis rap album. Fuck that. If not his weirdest, it's definitely at least like the. It's the least like any other Miles Davis album, I feel like. Yes. Even amongst his 80s work, it sort of stands alone. This feels right to me for the COVID era. Just like something I've been meaning to stare down, just look in the eyes. 80s Miles has always been this thing that I was kind of a little afraid of, even though, he, you know, I'm really deep into the 70s stuff and, you know, pretty much the whole, the whole gamut, except going deep with stuff like Doobop. Um, so that's why I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be taking care of something that's been looming like a gargoyle on my back for years. Anyone else, anyone else feel like you put it into very vivid terms? Uh, but I basically feel the same way you Winston are responsible in some way for me going from someone who appreciated Miles Davis as one of the greats in a kind of abstract way to someone who became like a full-on fanatic about him. We've talked a few times in the past about how like neither of us has quite been able to crack the egg of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel similarly like not only was this a good excuse to dive into this album, but it was also a good excuse to just like revisit that whole era and I found that I came away with like much more positive impressions of it than I ever have in the past. Yeah. In a way, it's like there's other stuff around it that's kind of objectively crazier, but it this is like the iconic kind of end point for Weird Miles in the 80s and his last album. Sam, is it a gargoyle on your back or...? definitely a getting my house in order feeling of sitting down with some of these records because this is technically 90s miles yeah exactly like i think i've like scratched the surface of some 80s miles but like definitely did not know the depths of it um 
Yeah, I also, like you said, it feels apt for the COVID era. It also feels apt for the point I'm in in my life, <laughs> where if my life is to be depicted as the span of Miles Davis's discography, mm-hmm. I'm probably not far from my tutu, my... <laughs> yeah, my, uh, you're, you're sort of like... My doobop. <laughs> you're like wandering alone, like rain-soaked city streets, kind of exactly w- wondering about the depths of the human soul, kind of. Yeah, thing. we're moving. We're onto the footnotes at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Are there any impressions you'd like to do today, Winston? Uh. I know we have a core audience who tunes in for this part of the show. I, I was working on one a little bit, kind of putting me on the spot, but maybe you can uh, guess who this... He's, he's involved in the in the story of this album, so uh, let's try it. So, um, <clears throat> Hello. I like to have uh, tantric sex. I'm a, I'm the best at slapping the bass. Andy. Sorry? Are you being, oh, yeah. It's Is me. it Andy? No, it's yeah. not Andy. <clears throat> Every time I'm talking about slapping the bass, doesn't mean Andy's the first man to slap the bass. Well, and tantric sex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's not, just the <laughs> one. it's not just the one. That wasn't, those weren't the best lines to leave with. Let me try it again. Uh, s- s- once again, I'm an Englishman in New York. Uh, you're the king of England, but he's no. in New York on vacation. Uh, Roxanne, please turn on a different color of light. It, oh, it, Frasier. <laughs> close. Mm. Hot. Very hot. Uh, I sting. Th- <laughs> there it is. Oh, there it okay. is. Wait, did you say sing or sting? I said sing. I want to hear his <laughs> character. <laughs> Rock! Yeah. All right, great job. We got it. Stang, uh, stang, sting. Um, just run a real quick here. Um, since you, uh, listener, listeners out there, since you clicked on this podcast about Miles Davis, there's a, about a 10% chance that you don't know anything about him. Um, uh, so I'm here to answer this week uh, the question that we try to answer about all our artists. Who is Miles Davis? Um, because we'll be talking a lot about his 80s career, but, you know, he is just a completely chameleonic uh, artist who is, who's changed music uh, many times. Miles came to New York to go to Juilliard, dropped out, uh, fell in with another one of the most influential jazz musicians of all time Charlie Parker played with him from about 1944 to 48 and then he was allowed to make his own album and he kind of innovated the cool jazz genre with his um, Birth of the Cool album the first time he worked with the arranger Gil Evans who would be a big part of of his career he formed a his first quintet, which is when he started collaborating with John Coltrane. That was John Coltrane, Paul Chambers, Red Garland, Philly Joe Jones. I don't know if you need to know that. But anyway, he started using this muted trumpet sound uh, in these records that, that 
you know, really made him very easy to recognize. He played less notes than a lot of other famous trumpet players. It was all about kind of picking interesting notes, interesting uh, harmonies with the players he was working with. And then he moved to Columbia Records, moved to a bigger label, started doing records with these bigger arrangements, big bandier kind of stuff with Gil Evans, and uh, then moved towards another sound, and he made his most influential album, Kind of Blue, definitely his most famous album that innovated this kind of modal jazz sound, moody, mellow, with these kind of unusual chords that was sort of Bill Evans on piano and then uh, Coltrane on sax and then formed another incredible group with uh, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, um, and Wayne Shorter in the late 60s that took, took his acoustic sound way far out and then he ended up starting to be real interested in rock music and funk and he put out Bitches Brew and In a Silent Way at the end of the decade, which are arguably just as great and influential as Kind of Blue. It was really controversial for him to move to this rock sound, etc., etc. He continued this into the first half of the 70s and made in kind of increasingly aggressive, experimental albums that sort of, that were like these big bands that he assembled and he was just kind of a little part in there like a texture and we started using all these effects on his trumpet started playing the organ on some tracks one of his great albums my opinion is on the corner from 1972 and then also get up with it from 1975 places where he's really stretching out and trying out a lot of different things and then at that point he falls off in about 1975 he got sick and reclusive and was dealing with drug addiction and just general psychological problems that had him withdraw from the world and our story that we'll get into kind of begins when he arrives back in the world in the 80s and starts trying to to reposition himself Sam is feeling pretty aligned with the Tutu vibe. That's 1986. But I think the world as a whole right now is firmly aligned. The year before, You're Under Arrest, which is a record that we talked a little bit about when we were like getting into this together, uh, which is a concept album about basically about racist police, police brutality. Yeah. yeah. That features Sting as a cop in the first track. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Pretty, in, pretty incredible. Yeah, and it's the- interesting that like it's almost starting to seem like a lot of people thought Miles, like a lot of critics, kind of look at Miles Davis's discography as this thing that maybe like ended in the '70s. But I think we're seeing that his cr- discography is a pretty good. Um, uh, it's a good microcosm for the span of American history. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yes. He did a lot of pretty high concept weird stuff in the 80s. It's just that a lot of it, more so than other periods. I mean, he's always worked with producers and arrangers, but it feels like a lot of this stuff was really specific partnerships with different people where other people were writing a lot of the music. But a lot of it is pretty weird and interesting. Like, You're Under Arrest was also kind of like a 
had some hits because it this was like the beginning of his pop period the early 80s was kind of him coming out of a long period of not recording and like severe drug addiction and misanthropy 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 i think, I think we can go either way on it i think lacan- both. lycanthropy misanthropy anyway really interesting stuff so second half of the 70s he's basically in this steeped in this drug haze and loses his embouchure and will to kind of play then he kind of gets resurrected in the early 80s kind of fumbles his way back into a sound so he's kind of doing stuff with 80s type textures but it's a little bit more like some of the more diffuse um electronic stuff that from the late 80s i would say like fractured kind of there's and then there's some pop experiments kind of all over the place like i like the record star people from 83 that's definitely one that's kind of like in that liminal zone but is like kind of interesting for that reason and then there's like yeah totally the man with the horn which is like some goofy pop stuff but also like kind of like hard blues you know there's a lot of this kind of fumbling around looking for like what's the center of the sound then in 84 i think decoy is the beginning of this period where it's like super electronic like beats and effects that's like kind of a really aggressive one uh then comes you're under arrest that has these hits michael jackson's Human Nature, Cindy Lauper, Time After Time, D-Train, Something's On Your Mind. There are were like live staples of his show, and they're also like, I think they still play on like smooth jazz radio stations, um, which is funny uh, that they're like these kind of smooth jazz pop covers alongside you know the aggressive anti-police stuff on that record. It's also like a funny sort of continuation of you know is is miles davis like playing cindy lopper in the 80s like so different from miles davis playing some kind of like pop standard in the right. 40s you know like this is it in, in a way it feels like this strange aberration but it's also like no, yeah. sort of of a piece of just like staying current with the sort of thing jazz musicians have always done yeah and he's he explicitly says that in in interviews like at the time i think he did a big interview at our old haunt spin wow with quincy quincy troop his biographer yeah it turned into that miles davis biography actually believe it or not fucked up yeah anyway yeah he kind of referred to it that way like new american songbook evolving american songbook was Um, he also um like gunning for a kind of commercial success at this point I mean, there's always been this weird thing with Miles where he's, like, into the new different kinds of, like, pop music, like, funk, soul, rock, etc. since since he went electric in 1968, you know? And even before that, he was, like, super into whatever music was kind of hip. And, you know, he always has kind of tried to emulate it in some way, but it always comes out, of course, like, sounding insane, like, sounding like Miles Davis. And, uh... It might have gotten closest to sounding less insane during the second half of the 80s, though obviously there's a lot of insane stuff as well. Um, but he's he's working more so than ever with musicians who are out of the jazz idiom fully um, or like people who really made their name 
on soul and funk records so like one of his big collaborators is marcus miller the bass player and their first big statement is tutu which is generally thought of like as the classic of the 80s for miles which is like really a lot of drum programming delving into a whole new fully electronic kind of universe for him but it's stylistically super interesting i mean you guys are listening to that and having sort of a breakthrough with it it seems yeah um i think for me like one of the problems with getting into miles davis in the 80s has been in the past you know you alluded to this quality of his 70s music where he was trying to sort of like capture the youthful sound of of the day and you know people dismissed it for that reason um because it was like okay here's this genius of of this precious art music who's now you know dipping his toes in the dirty water of like funk and pop and stuff but then when you listen to those records like they sound absolutely insane (laughs) Um, and they you know they're amazing um if anyone is like listening to this podcast and has not ever heard like the output of miles davis in the 70s if you take nothing away from this just like please listen to those records yes uh and i guess like for me always like going into the 80s it sort of felt like okay now whatever that like personal idiosyncratic vision was that kept those 70s records still sounding so weird even if he was trying to make pop music i always felt like was a little harder to perceive in the 80s records and that like you maybe were getting a little bit more of his content, his like collaborators vision than you were getting his. Mm. Uh, but revisiting stuff like Tutu in the preparation of this episode and also you're under arrest. Uh, it's like, okay, if you get past the fact that he's playing Cindy Lauper, there really is some like pretty, uh, some pretty crazy music on those records too, in a good For way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of crazy stuff from the end of the deck. I mean, another one, that is probably my favorite of the decade is Aura, which I was like talking up to you guys, which is essentially like a piece written by a Danish composer, Paula Mikkelborg. But it's like, it's like based around a tone row of 10 pitches that spell out Miles Davis. And it's cool. It's unclear why he, Miles agreed to do it like to this day. People are like, why did, why did he do it? But it, it's super cool. Like, spanning all sorts of styles like kind of it's proggy it's like got elements of classical music new wave rock straight ahead jazz this kind of uh phantasmagoria of stuff and it didn't get released till later because the record company hated it (laughs) i guess it's very weird which Uh, is insane to think because to me i listened to that album and i was totally blown away i thought it was so beautiful and so like grand and mysterious and it's it was listening to it it was kind of funny to me that he put out this really beautiful like record that to me does so many of the things i come to a miles davis record for and then bowed out on this like weird cartoonish hip-hop album (laughs) yeah (laughs) like i don't know like if i think if aura would have been his final record it probably would have added to its status in his catalog for sure but instead it's just another underrated 80s album that right. came before his actual final album yeah so then we get then miles passes away <laughs> in 1991 after working on this 
project, which he did not finish and was kind of supposed to involve other things. Like he was working with Prince at the time also. Uh, and that didn't get finished. It, it was sort of, as far as I understand, it's kind of a convoluted history, but he was trying to do a bunch of kind of pop style related experiments at this time. Right. Yeah, there's there's at least one account that this was originally supposed to be a double album uh, with like the album that we now know as Dubop being one disc of it and then the other disc being like collaborations with like various funk musicians and then also with Prince. Right. And we've never heard like even at like as Prince so far at least like those are presumably in the Prince vault somewhere, but they have not yet been uh, excavated. So crazy. Yeah. Someday. But no, we just get this short little disc called Doobop, which um, is, a, as you said, a collaboration with Easy Moby. He's a producer um, that would go on to actually do a lot of important work, most notably working on Biggie's Ready to Die. Responsible yeah. for Gimme the Loot and the title track and like six tracks on there. He's also on Life After Death. He worked with Tupac, If I Die Tonight, great song. Big Daddy Kane, Das Effects, personal favorite of mine. Buster Rhymes, a bunch of people. So he's legit. One interesting thing is that pretty much all that stuff came after he worked with Miles all, Davis. All after, yeah. Yeah. So it's not as though he was like, it's not as though Miles called up somebody who was like, this guy with a track record of of all these classic songs and said let's make a record together like at the time easy moby had this group called rapping is fundamental yes and that was pretty much the only thing that he had been doing yet at that point and i guess russell simmons connected the two of them but uh as as this guy philip freeman points out uh in the book running the voodoo down um it's like yet another instance of Miles uh, reaching out to players who are a lot younger than him mm-hmm. to realize the vision that he's going for as it relates to like contemporary music. He was always like going after kind of young guns who had their finger on the pulse of like what was happening right then uh, and like going after Easy Moby rather than a, a more established uh, rap producer is like sort of the final example of that. Which is funny because part of the criticism of this record, and if we listen to some of it, it'll become a little clear. Listening back to it now, you might think, oh yeah, this is like early 90s rap sounds like this. But there is kind of a way in which it sounds a little cornball. There was kind of an accusation of like a bit of schlock or uninteresting flips in the reviews of it. It's funny to imagine this thing coming out a few months after his death and people just having to be like, this kind of sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, like, all right, this is a disappointment, you know? Yeah. So, uh, which is sort of what Sam was saying. Like, if it had been Aura, that would have been like, whoa. It was like, it's Doobop. It's sort of an un- the definition of an unfortunate footnote. I mean, although we still have to decide if it's unfortunate. Something I wanted to ask um, was... Did Miles Davis like hip hop? Like, how deep was his understanding or appreciation of the genre? I would say probably not that deep. 
the story is that he would like sit in his apartment and open the window and listen to what people were playing on the street and be like, I got to get some of that, you know, (laughs) that sound. Um, For those listening, we have audio from the archives of Miles Davis. Uh, (laughs) So this is what they came up with. This is the sound of of the the streets outside of Miles Davis's apartment. Yeah. I mean, you have like, it seems like his engagement with like funk and, and psychedelic music in the seventies was like really pretty deep, you know, like he had Betty Davis, like turning him on to a lot of stuff and he seemed to like really be interested in like Sly Stone's music. Uh, but like, yeah, this one, it's like, if you sat Miles Davis down and were and were like, "Who's your favorite rapper?" Like, not I don't sure know. Would, would, would he have a long list to answer with? I'm not right. really sure. I mean, well, that's kind of like what I'm getting at, which is like, there's so many questions this album leaves. One of which is like, how much of this did he actually take part in? Like, how much yeah. of this was his vision? But the other thing is like, when an artist at that point in their career cites something as an influence, there are times when it sounds when it seems like a more like I want to do something contemporary. And then there are other instances where it sounds like, I don't know, like David Bowie citing Kendrick Lamar as an influence on black star. And then you listen to the record and you're like, I actually hear that. Like I hear it's, it's like that versus like Dave Grohl being like Billie Eilish is my favorite musician right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but also like, I mean, a good example of a good. Yeah. Your if his relationship to the genre is like I opened my window and I asked Russell Simmons what I heard. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's probably tells you all you need to know. Pretty yeah, sick. Yeah. Pretty sick. All right, let's get into it. Where do we want to yeah. start, Andy? Maybe you could lead us through. Uh... Sure. Yeah, uh, I think a good place to start is the Doobop song. Uh, it's yes. the title track. It's the first one that. So another thing that we should make clear about this record is that. Uh, Easy Moby is also rapping on it some of the time. Yeah, uh, there's, but there's another. There are another, right? There and the other, the other guys from rapping is fundamental around yeah, it too, yeah, right? Right. His yeah. Names, I do not know. And don't and also uh, bef- don't have their own Wikipedia pages, for instance. Before yeah. we play it, also just like think of the what is at stake when you're like in the vocal booth, and it's like, okay, you're going to be doing a <laughs> verse on the final Miles Davis album. <laughs> Choose your words carefully. He's an absolute legend. Yeah, because like so, his final statement. Because some of the raps were recorded after he died, like. Right? Definitely, yeah. yeah some of them even like, seem to address that's that. That's so fucked up. Well, it really is fucked up because. One of the first raps in this song is, let's kick a verse for my man called Miles, because seems to me he's going to be around for a long while. Wow, yeah. Well, maybe it's like his legacy will live on. Here we are talking about Doobop. Still, 30 years later. Seems weird. He uh, he was right. And in other ways, he was very wrong, (laughs) sadly. (laughs) Anyway, this is the Doobop song. So a funny thing about this record, and especially the first two songs, is like the sound of it is just completely anonymous, like chill out music. Yeah. Of like I'm just at some bar that like can't be bothered to kind of like 
come up with what music they want to play and so they're just like kind of playing this wallpaper music but then the guy playing is like one of the greatest musicians who ever walked the earth yeah and and it's just like such a funny juxtaposition yeah i feel like i'm waiting for a really bad 14 dollar cocktail at a hotel bar yeah I would kill for a hotel bar right now. Uh, amen, brother. In this era of COVID. But it's also, like, in its way, I don't know, there's, like, a vibe I could get into about it. Yeah. It's, like, it, it definitely does feel distinct, and it definitely does set a mood that is maybe kind of captured in the cover art I'm staring at right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mind it. Yeah, me neither at all. Which the co- the cover art, just so anyone who doesn't have it right in front of them, it's Miles Davis sitting shirtless with leopard pants on like this very brightly primary colored couch. <laughs> it definitely, I know he was off it at this point, but it definitely like looks like the sort of place where cocaine might be close by, yes. available if he wanted it. Yeah. This should totally be a recurring segment of our podcast where we describe the cover and try to figure out what drugs are just out of frame yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right let's hear some of that rapping okay which one i guess in that song let's take a verse from a man called miles because seems to me he's going to be around for a long while because he's a multi-talented and gifted musician who can play in a position it's no mystery that you're no risk to me because i'm the love until your girl to throw a kiss to me and hop in bed and have a fight with the pillow turn off the lights and let's so one thing i like is like every verse kind of starts with like a very brief shout out to miles davis <laughs> and then like goes into like just the classic just rapping about you know your own skills or yeah, like yeah. you know how good you are with the ladies or whatever like it's like, by the way, I'm with Miles Davis, and now I'm just going to kind of like <laughs> start rapping on autopilot. Yeah, the rhyming Miles with a while in the literal first bars is not is not the best look, in my opinion. Yeah. I guess it's a that's a gangstar flip of... It's a flip of a gangstar beat, which is it's in itself a flip of Cool in the Gang Summer Madness, so... Just so you guys know, these are established samples being used in all these songs, you know. Yeah. Another one uh, to talk about there is like the song Fantasy samples ESG's UFO and uh, the Tomahawks. uh, What's the song called? The Champ. Classic. Uh, The Champ, yeah. So it's just like two of the most recognizable samples in rap music history which i guess maybe weren't quite so recognizable then because it was only 1992 but still it like feels to me like this gesture of like yes this is hip-hop make no mistake yeah actually this is i liked this song but you're right andy its inclusion is almost like having camp town races on your album or something exactly yeah (laughs) Uh, i like this song too this in terms of just like purely pleasant vibe, this might be the, the my favorite on the album. Also, oh, definitely I, one of the ones where I'm like, how involved in the song was Miles Davis? <laughs> I think this is one of the ones that came together after he died. Yeah, there's not yeah. much of him on here. 
There we go. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, it's the Mohawks, the champ, not the Tomahawks. My mistake. Which is the little organ riff you'll hear a little later. Mm. This is like like the uh, the aggressive song compared to the most of the rest of this record, by the way. Yeah. yeah. This is comparatively like hardcore. Although yeah, it like... definitely got my attention when it came on. There's a song called High Speed Chase, which also was assembled after he died, which is aggressive in its own. Yeah, yeah. That's the one that has like the the CC Music Factory shouts. Yeah, and it's like super fast. It kind of has this like art of noise, like, or even like Bomb Squad kind of like really manic sample collage Ah! feel. Yeah, Yeah, this one's pretty cool. Yeah, this is my other fave just because it's so weird. This is like if um, that same hotel bar had a fire drill. <laughs> Get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the better ones. Yeah, yeah, this one's cool. One thing I like about this this one is like, see, he's like really soloing, you know, uh, not just kind of like playing these like vibey little riffs. And at times there's like a vibes player who's like matching his like pretty complicated weird phrasing of his solo um note for note in a way that like could not have been something that was just like performed live the way that like a traditional jazz record would have been performed is like clearly someone in the studio was like let's have someone learn his solo and like overdub this thing on top of it which like to me is like this pretty cool interesting taking advantage of the possibilities that the technology or like the format that they were using offered to them that like i wish the record did more of yeah Uh, like a lot of this record is just like well here's a rap beat and like solo over it in the same way that you might if you were just like playing with a band (laughs) and that's like one of the only moments where it's like no let's actually kind of like take advantage of uh the fact that we are making this record in this different way and try to like make something different musically with it. Right. And it, ma- it makes me like sort of wish that there were more Miles Davis hip hop albums after this <laughs> where like some of those ideas could be developed a little bit more fully. Yeah. That's what I thought too. More and more of this. Yes. I want more of this. Um, yeah. I'm trying to, I thought I read one positive review of the album that was like, the only problem is it leaves us wanting more. Maybe I just imagine that. <laughs> the, the best quote from a review I saw was Entertainment Weekly calling it elegant aural wallpaper, which is sort of what I would call it. Yeah, it's not. There, not it's not without its elegance. I think it's more fun than that sounds. Like It's definitely not like, a, I don't know, I had fun listening to it. It definitely has personality. All right, what's one of the, I would say one of the more fun moments might, let's get into a little more rapping because we haven't heard a ton of it. It's a blow. We Blow, skip yeah. a little bit in. There's some good rapping in there. Here I am, easy Moby, kicking it live with the legendary Miles Davis, just my favorite. <laughs> That's my favorite. Just my favorite. Just my favorite. 
be sure to hear Mars do the woobity shoe bop just to show us AP created the doo hop. Not doo bop, but bebop makes with hip hop. Don't be confused as your mind goes flip flop. So relax with the trumpet, jeeps just thump it. As for the girls, pop it. And make way for display in this way. Easy mo be a Miles Davis gets busy. With the sound of his horn on the set, so relax and let go. Me and the chief. So I'd like to also point out like the title of this doo bop, which gets explained by like whoever's rapping like three or four times over the course of the record. Yeah, it's good to it's good which, to walk through that a little bit. Yeah, which is yeah. like okay, so rap because I'm lost. I need <laughs> if you could spell this out, that would be amazing. Okay, so rapping is fundamental. Had a, a album called the Do Hop Legacy mm-hmm. uh, that had came out shortly before this. Like you and do. like their part of their whole concept was that like in the middle of their songs they would occasionally break out into like doo-wop harmony singing was it like uh, a medical condition <laughs> yeah they would just it would just overtake them sometimes and and which you do hear a little bit like there's one part uh, of, of the doo-wop song i think where it's like with miles miles davis in like yeah, this, yeah, yeah, this yeah. doo-wop thing should have been more uh, but of it, so, honestly their their whole kind of like gimmicky tagline about their music was that it was called not hip hop music but doo hop music because it was like a mix of doo hop and hip hop. So they have imported their own little gimmick of doo hop into this Miles Davis album, mixing doo hop with bebop to come up with doo bop, which I feel like you just should call it hip bop. <laughs> Because nobody knows what the do part is supposed to mean, unless you're just like a big rap and his fundamental fan. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny how much it's like Easy Mo B's project, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's just totally like a vehicle for him as much as I mean that's the weird dynamic with a lot of the people Miles worked with, you know? Like, yeah, like he di- he was doing all these movie soundtracks a little before this too, and he wouldn't be the main name on it. Like Marcus Miller would be the main name on it, but. He'd be on it the same. Miles would be on it the same amount that he's on albums under his name. You know, right? What are some other good? There's a good, uh, good rap line. Miles in the style of your hip hop bugle, not yeah. your ordinary or ever Chattanooga, the train that goes choo choo. Some lines like this. It's not the so Dubop, the name, and some of these raps implies doesn't matter what time of rap you're in. Really, it's not the coolest, you know. Yeah, the rapping is is a little corny. NWA has emerged, you know what I mean? Yeah, and like if you are looking for a fusion of hip hop and jazz, like a tribe called Quest has also come out. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Another question I was left with listening to this album was, who is this for? Like, who is the Miles Davis audience who wants a hip hop album? Who is the hip-hop audience who will come to this Miles Davis album? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I found myself thinking that when I was like, what else should they be rapping about? Because it's (laughs) kind of like, it's probably hard to know, like, who they're rapping to. And I'm like, for a moment, I was grateful that we didn't get a bunch of raps about, like, his death. Like, a Mm. bunch of, like, eulogizing him over, like, beats. But then I was like, well, maybe, like that would have made this feel more substantial or something but i don't know they kept the mood light and that seems intentional there's also not a lot of like 
There's not a lot of like cursing. Like it seems almost like family friendly. Yeah. Like educational at times. Your point about it being good that the raps aren't about his death uh, <laughs> sort of makes me think like in a perverse way, like one of the innovations of this album is like it's an early example of like the posthumous rap album of like, uh-huh. you know, uh, oh, he's got these like verses recorded on yeah. his trumpet that he did to like other music. We're just going to like put it on top of some beat that we made and put some of our rapping on it is like that would become very common. Well, it would, at least in the, you know, maybe not very common, but it would happen in a few very high profile cases as the 90s went on. That like probably that approach to like making it, I don't think there was a posthumous hip hop album that came out before Doobop. Uh, It's like a a funny innovation for it to make. See, to me, that's why it's such a fascinating album because it is like an early example of the legendary artist posthumous album. Yeah. And in some ways it prefaces like posthumous albums that are just like loaded with guests or like ones that are super craven attempts to like get hits or like fit in with the times. Um, Yeah. And in that sense, like in my mind, I could contextualize it as like somewhere between like those types of releases and in that way i actually think it's really successful because it just like embraces the idea that this probably is not the record miles davis would have made right you know and because of that it's allowed to be this weird product which is almost more fun for me to listen to like in how unfinished it is and how like uninterested it is in like adding to his actual legacy Right. Well, it's interesting because just last year, the follow-up to Doobop, I guess you could say, another posthumous <laughs> album using material from just a little bit before this that is also kind of pop music, funk, and soul-oriented stuff uh, came out with a whole bunch of new vocals and stuff layered on top of it, new beats, but you know, positioned as a Miles Davis album called Rubber Band. And it was stuff, yeah, just left over from Sessions. I think maybe the Sessions Prince was supposed to have been involved in... Yeah, so I think that when this was, like, conceived as a double-disc thing, like, Miles' title for that other disc was, like, the rubber band material. That was, Uh, like, the... That was the stuff that was supposed to go along with Dubop. Right. I mean, it feels just, like, completely remote from anything that would have come out in Miles' lifetime. But, um... Yeah. But yeah. also sort of thematically appropriate for the way that this album came out. Yeah, in the Doobop uh, legacy. There's an interview with Easy Moby like from a few years ago where he said he was working on a remix album yeah. of of Doobop. Yeah, with Alicia Keys. Ma- with Alicia Keys, yeah, yeah, that has so far failed to materialize. Where you know, that? I'm like, I don't, I don't like the idea of them trying to redo this album and make it more tasteful or dignified or something to me. Yeah. Totally. Like, what's the point? Totally. They should do like Doobop naked, you know, strip it back (laughs) to the (laughs) the original takes. Just like, see, this is the thing where it's like, I tend to like, I'm like drawn to these releases because a lot of my favorite artists are like dead. (laughs) So I end up like 
confronting a lot of posthumous albums and i always feel somewhat uncomfortable with the ones that they try to recreate and like the artist's image like uh-huh. there's that leonard cohen one last year thank you for the dance oh yeah I which i've listened to a lot i've, I've listened to it because it's like interesting as a listener but it's also like just something about it feels weird to me uh-huh. like trying to envision like what would have come from his mind and give it this like like grim sense of like yeah his final works like something i like about doobop is that it totally maybe because that hadn't been invented yet but it just like totally ignores the decorum of like <laughs> yeah. how we treat like yeah, a yeah. Dead legacy artist. Like there he is on the cover, like not looking like at peace at all. Insanely <laughs> like, goofy and slight record. Which is also like yeah, it's probably closer to what you know, he like would an have artist actually wanted to make. Yeah, yeah, like something in motion, yeah. something where it's like was the an idea he just came up with one day and like brought in some collaborators for it. in that sense it, i find it to be like a really i don't know like almost like charming record there, there's a funny like dichotomy between this and like there's the miles davis and quincy jones at the montro jazz oh, yeah. festival performance which happened like right before he died which was like this extremely kind of grandiose like elegy for him in a way uh, where he like was playing some of his like revisiting some of his old material for like the first time ever backed by like this big kind of orchestral group. And I think that came out right after Dubop. And it's funny that they, you kind of ha- get to have it like both ways of like two different uh, visions of what his like final album might be. This kind of like grave, very serious, very regal thing. And then this very kind of like, fun sort of slight and insubstantial experiment that seems like probably more like the kind of thing that he was actually interested in Mm -hmm. yeah it makes sense too because he was so uninterested in like treating his catalog with reverence like it could have been really easy for him to just like reunite one of his old groups or like make music that sounded that way yeah it's almost like dylan where it's like he had spent so long with people telling him he's not doing what he should be doing. Yeah. That, like, you can't help but, like, if you're all in on the music, like, just follow wherever it leads. Totally. I was just thinking, like, about this today, listening to some of his 80s records about how, like, Weather Report in this, in this period was, like, experimenting with some similar ideas with, like, synths and with, like, kind of dance music energy and, like, pop and it's like you know these are like your guys uh some of them like you he could have been like well let me link up with like with the old band and and pursue this kind of style of music together but i don't know if they had if he like had issues with wayne shorter joe zawanul or anything but like the fact that instead of doing that he was still like always seeking out new people to play with there is like those those herbie records VSOP. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he reu- they reunited the the second great Miles Quintet without Miles With, without him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like f- frequently over time would would uh, do shows and even records with them, which is kind of interesting. I don't really know how Miles felt about that. You know, I have that first VSOP record. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, hey, it's a gr- one of the greatest uh, musical ensembles ever. So 
Yeah. Can't. Uh, but uh, yeah, old Miles, gotta love him. Which might be a good transition into the final segment of late era. Yeah. In in all uh, episodes of this show, fantasy or delusion, where. Uh, in a nod to uh, Billy Joel's 2001 book of classical uh, piano music, Fantasies and Delusions, which never you fear we'll be doing a deluxe episode devoted to if you stick around listening to this show, which I can't imagine you won't stick around and listen to every episode of. You will hear our amazing star-studded Fantasies and Delusion episode soon enough. But for now... We do this segment where we decide if the album we're listening to is a fantasy, aka good and inspired, or a delusion, um, something dark and misbegotten, uh, more or less. So, let's start with Sam. For me, this is an absolute fantasy. Um, I had a great time listening to the record. I think it's like... In some ways, it's aged very poorly. Yes, the rapping is very representative of a different period in rap music, and it can sound kind of corny. And the production is obviously something we've moved past a billion times to the extent that it's come back into being cool and now isn't cool again or whatever. But I don't know. A lot of the other flaws with it are actually endearing to me. At the time, I think a lot of people felt it was slight, but it's like kind of the perfect length for me where it's like this fun breezy moment um i think it's truer to the spirit of miles davis than people gave it credit for at the time for me it really opened up a lot of his later work that i hadn't heard before and i also just admire the absurdity of it the fact that whoever was tasked with completing it just like kind of went all in and didn't try to clean it up or turn it into something else. It's to me a really great example of a posthumous album that feels, um, I don't know, like sounds corny, but it's an example of a posthumous album that feels like full of life to me. And yeah, to me, I really liked it. Wow. You make a good, you make a strong case. Mm -hmm. Uh, almost enough to convince me but i'm going to keep my original answer just to keep things interesting here whoa and say that i think that this album is a delusion my god uh which isn't to say that i think that miles was delusional when he made it uh this is just our very rough system for passing some kind of yes or no judgment on an album uh Preparing for this episode, um, like I alluded to earlier, involved a quick but meaningful tour through um, this entire late period of Miles' music, which I had always kind of neglected or dismissed uh, before this, or like I had tried to get into it and it just wasn't doing it for me. And... um, hearing it in comparison to some of the other work he was doing shortly before some of which feels just so much more full of personality and idiosyncrasy and um, vision and vision that really feels like even if he was uh, collaborating with someone like Marcus Miller, like you, 
you get a lot just through his playing you get a lot of miles personality in some of those records um you know like tutu or and and you're under arrest and aura that it's just harder for me to connect with uh on doobop um i do have a lot of fun listening to it but the moments where it kind of rises above where the moments where my brain is sort of tickled and brought to life by something that miles played in the way that like you can pretty much reliably count on to happen like a hundred times in any given miles Davis album. Like we're pretty few and far between here. I do love the idea of it. I get some pleasure from it, but it doesn't sort of like, make me feel electrified and alive in the way that I look to Miles Davis's music to do. And okay, before I sign off, I have to share a story that I uh, forgot to share at some other point in this episode, which is the first time I ever heard Dubop was in a college class and a professor uh, was do, it was an ethnomusicology class. And my professor was doing this whole thing of like, what is the meaning of jazz? And he would play stuff and be like, is this jazz, you know? (laughs) And he played some track from Doobop and he's like, so class, like, do you think that's jazz? And everyone was kind of like, well, no, not really. It sounds more just like a hip hop instrumental or something. And then he was like, what if I told you that the (laughs) artist was Miles Davis? (laughs) Wow, I can't believe you neglected to lead off with this. I know, I really should have. I have a uh, similar story about my classical music class where they played Fantasy and Delusion with Billy Joel. <laughs> Just kidding. Damn. Yeah. We should get your prof on our pod. Yeah. Emmett That's a really good point. Yeah. He's a very smart, he's a brilliant guy. I'm sure he would, he would be a good uh, guest. So that, that reminds me, I mean, the question that we're kind of asked here today to answer is, I mean, there's not very much competition. We're basically asking, is Miles Davis's worst album still good? It's sort of one of the questions we'll be basically tackling on many of these episodes. And I've I've waffled a bit um, because I find the rapping so silly that it's hard to detach from it. At the same time, I have some sympathy i i kind of like rapping like that when it's done better and easy mo b did das effects who's one of my favorite like goofy kind of clean rap acts from like golden age rap acts do it but they are, are it's a very different like more interesting delivery um so i kind of have to get past those miles you know what those those raps that we were talking about but I, I'm going to call it a fantasy. I do, I like sort of the long hypnotic instrumental introduction. Like, with all these songs, we had to skip like far in to get to the rapping, and some of them don't have rapping. And some of those that, some of that hotel lounge vibe feels like a, a soundtrack to me, or like a pleasant kind of soundtrack to me for a film, which makes sense because that's like what he was doing a lot at this time. And it's like too low stakes for me to really not like it. I don't know. And it's short. I like the brevity of it. I can't really it say. Really, it really is a breeze lengthwise. Yeah, it's just breezy and hard to be mad at, you know. 
which isn't as strong an endorsement as Sam, obviously. I just think it's not a thorn in my side. It's it's far from a uh, nadir in his catalog. It's it's it could have been hyper like serious and aggro and uh heart like he made music that is more like that in the 80s it's like so uh aggressively 80s that like and like hard funk that it's a bit there there are portions of his discography like decoy and stuff that are a bit harder for me to listen to um so yeah i'm gonna call it a fantasy nobody should be mad that dubop exists and I'm not mad some, at all. Some of you know, Let but there are there are a lot. Right, I know you aren't, but you know there are a lot of people out there who are probably even people listening to this podcast that say well, this is bullshit. You know, right. fuck Dubop. It's got a really. It's not jazz. It's really well, yeah. Those people, but also people are just like you can't defend this. It's a historically just stupid thing, and I would say you know so what. It's, yeah, to those people, I say welcome to late era. This exactly. is what we do. This is yeah. what we this do. This is not baby. the fucking Rolling Stone album guide. Yeah, this is not the. Uh, We're drawing mojo. our own conclusions. This here. is not the Mojo out uh, best rock out. This is not the Blender or the yeah. Magnet. Sorry, this isn't the All Music guide. Yeah, sorry, this isn't the Paste uh, <laughs> guide to legit rock and jazz music. This isn't alternative nations top yeah. grunge albums of the 90s yeah. this isn't exactly. fucking 100 albums to hear before you die yeah this, this isn't, isn't 1001 albums to hear before you die this isn't revolvers top miles davis albums <laughs> yeah we we did it to him in the last few minutes here it's really good stuff thank you all for tuning in to another episode of late era we'll be back with more nasty albums that we get nasty or two is that safe to say that we're gonna do that <clears throat> yeah sure. yeah take care everyone i'm winston be kind to each other i'm andy i'm sam all right peace out see you next time Bye, y'all. the late era podcast is hosted by andy kush winston cook wilson and sam sadomsky it is edited and produced by winston cook wilson the executive producers of late era are brian brinkman and rjb Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media.